you've got a sustainable house would be the things that sort of go through the house on an everyday basis. Solar panels, set insulation, draft proofing. I've got to be honest, I am not sure what sustainability even is. Welcome to Real Talk, realestate.com.au's property news podcast. It's real questions, real experts, and real insights on the housing issues that matter with your host, Alice Piper. Hello and welcome to Real Talk. Today's episode is all about sustainable housing, what that even means for the average person and honestly, why should we care? We hear a lot about star-rated houses, transition to green energy, solar panels, getting off gas, all of which sounds time-consuming but also quite expensive, especially when even the price of regular groceries feels a little bit too much at the moment. Let's hear what Aussies have to say. So what do you think makes a sustainable house? Something that is easy to maintain, easy to heat. Design principles, um, materials. Done such a way to have minimum impact on, on the environment. You can live in without having to fork out a lot of money ongoing. Public's responsibility to educate themselves and to take responsibility for their choices and their actions. It shouldn't be up to the government. I think it's, it does have a perception of being more expensive in the way that people think of you know buying organic vegetables. You feel like you're going to be paying at a premium. I've got solar. We spent a lot on our solar, 18 grand. I like the idea of, yeah, being able to use electricity during the day, knowing that it's generated more sustainably. Joining me to sort it all out is Philip Oldfield from the University of New South Wales Built Environment Department. He's spent the last two decades researching sustainable design and development in cities. Anthony Lillis is here from Lendlease where he's the National Housing Product Manager. He has over 25 years' experience in the industry with a background in residential design. Now, I want to be perfectly honest here because this is probably one of the most confusing topics for me. I hear the word sustainability and it is a buzzword, but I don't actually know too much about it. So I want to do my best to help our listeners and myself understand it. Philip, I'd love you to give us a top-line view around what we mean when we talk about sustainable housing and why it is such a massive buzzword at the moment. You're right. It it is a really big buzzword, isn't it? We use sustainable in front of everything, sustainable food, sustainable transit. I think we need to take a step back. The first time sustainable development was used was in the late 1980s in something called the Brundtland Report. And sustainable development was defined as development that meets the needs of the present without restricting future generations to meet their own needs. The way we can think about that, if you look at uh, building large McMansion detached houses with black roofs and no greenery on the fringes of our cities, now that's not sustainable because it impacts future people's lives. We're going to have an urban heat problem. If we dig into sustainability a bit more, we actually see there's three pillars of sustainability, just environmental, economic, and social. And we have to balance the three. And in housing, a good way to think about that is if I design a series of net zero homes, they have very little energy, super efficient, but if they cost $4 million each, you know, they're environmentally sustainable, but not financially sustainable. So we couldn't consider them holistically sustainable. Likewise, if I develop a a net zero home, but it's so small that a family couldn't live there, you might argue that's socially not sustainable. So the key thing in sustainability is balancing the economic, the environmental, and the social. And with housing, that's a real challenge. We're always navigating between those different pillars. Anthony, as a developer who is creating homes for the future, can you share with us what you're seeing on the ground when it comes to sustainable housing features and what consumers are demanding at the moment? It's really at the forefront. Many of our customers are experiencing 
you know, a, a real desire to live in a more sustainable environment. We're seeing people really look at adapting some of those elements into their homes, but they are conscious of cost and it's really managing those benefits and the cost that are associated with it. So as a developer, we're looking at certain things to try to help out. So that's through working with builders on new design, on materials, things as simple as looking at roof colour and, and, and trying to mandate lighter roof colours in some areas. So we, we've started to do that on some of our projects and, and even more, more to the point, probably around our overall master plan subdivision and trying to optimise lot orientation as best as we can to provide an opportunity for the customer to be able to source of a floor plan or a house that actually best relates to, to the orientation, which can actually reduce the costs quite significantly um, in a build if an appropriate plan and lot are kind of matched together. Philip, what are the tangible differences that homeowners can see in the running of their property if they have, say, a seven-star home? I was looking at some data just before I came on the podcast to kind of check about this. And, and if you've got an additional cost of, say, $5,000 up front, the data in Melbourne, for example, says that homeowners might save 150 to to $300 per year on their energy bills. Now, that's not huge, but it does add up over time. And it particularly adds up given that we know energy bills are increasing, they're increasing quite dramatically as well. There is an upfront cost, but there will over time be a energy saving as well for homeowners. There was that whole news story about a year ago that white roofing was so much better for keeping houses cool because it reflects the sunlight instead of absorbing it as a black roof does. Anthony, what do you think are the features that have the biggest impact on our climate? I mean, the roof one's an interesting one. It does have some benefit. It can vary from region to region. You can argue in the cooler states, you know, in some aspects, from a performance perspective, a darker roof can kind of have some benefits as well, um, depending on the, on the time of year. So it's kind of a bit of a balancing act, I suppose, when it comes to it. But I think as a principle, having lighter roofs as an overall to help minimise heat island effect is an important application for developers and, and any homeowners to be looking at. But there's other key things. I mean, for me, it really comes down to around understanding the orientation of your lot and making sure that the floor plan that you've got is best suited for that particular orientation. And builders do have an array of different product out there. And there's designers, obviously, who can design bespoke for, for different orientations. For me, the, the primary thing is to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward with the appropriate floor plan for your particular lot type, because that's just starting you in a, in, in a good position to be able to deal with all those benefits that solar gain give you. And, you know, essentially what that does in, in a very simple principle, it's with the appropriate devices, such as eaves and other elements um, associated to the home, it helps your home stay cooler in summer and helps your home stay warmer in winter. So there's some of the fundamental things, which when then you put into it, the appropriate glazing and insulation really help make that building perform a, a, a lot better. Philip, I've heard this term thrown around called energy poverty. It sounds a little bit frightening, but what exactly does it mean? It's a really important term and it means one of two things. It means somebody is either struggling to pay their energy bills or it means they're not using heating and cooling to their detriment because they can't pay their energy bills. For example, it, it might be a family who are financially pushed because of high energy bills. And so instead of putting the heating on, they rug up significantly to their detriment, even when it's really, really cold. And we know that around 25% of Australians currently live in energy poverty. It's a really high amount. 
we also know that affects uh, disproportionately families with children, people with health and mental health issues, people from lower socioeconomic groups as well. And so retrofitting our existing building stock will help reduce energy poverty, will improve the lives of tens of thousands of people. So the ACCC, which is the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, said in its June report that electricity bills are going to increase even further this year. The record high wholesale price from mid-2022 are sadly continuing to flow through, which is you know, pretty unwelcome news for Australians that don't have solar panels. Maybe they rely on gas and they live in average older homes. Anthony, are we seeing a change in behaviour from buyers? Do they care more about upfront costs or ongoing costs when it comes to buying a new home? They're starting to realise, I think, initially the up cost is, is an issue with the buyers and it needs to be articulated appropriately how there is benefit in the long term. Now, most people buy a home, they're not buying it for 12 months or, or 18 months. They're buying it primarily long-term, or even if it's for a certain period of time, then they sell and then they move into a new home. It's a long-term proposition. So they still look at the overall benefits. And I think if, if it can be well presented how these innovations that are being um, incorporated over time do save money, that's the messaging that has to be expressed out there to, to get the purchasers to understand um, more appropriately. Philip, are you finding in the work that you do people are willing to pay more for sustainable features? I'm not sure. I mean, when you look at the costs, you know, the data is quite mixed. And, and what we're seeing is this move from, say, six star to seven star. The upfront costs are probably somewhere between $5,000 to $10,000 upfront, which is not a small amount. But if you're saving $200, $300 a year on your energy bills, that's going to be significant and you'll, you'll get a payback within maybe, you know, uh, 10, 15 years. The real challenge is we're in such a housing affordability crisis at the moment. That is a block. That is a blockade, an extra 10 grand on our house. That's a real challenge here is more sustainable housing does require more insulation, probably better performing windows. We're not talking about crazy technologies, but it will have a bit of an upfront cost and that can be a barrier to some people. And, and then and you've got the equality side of this as well. And what we can't afford to have is high quality housing for one group of society, then lower sustainable housing, poor performing housing for people who can't afford it because we end up with significant health and wellbeing problems in that sense. So how we make this equitable as well is a real challenge. I'm really glad you brought up the star rating there because, Anthony, I really want to break it down when we compare a one-star home to a 10-star home. What are the differences? Like, what is this sliding scale? Oh, I mean, there's a, there's a massive difference between a one and a 10. I mean, you're talking extremes there. There a long, long time ago when homes were built to that standard or I don't even think if you even classified one-star buildings. I think what there has been is, is probably from that five-star evolution to six-star and then seven-star. That's been probably the, the real serious movement we've seen in, in building designs. And Philip touched on it. The key things have been around insulation and windows, um, performance of windows, that is. So whether double glazing or size of windows that come into play as well. And that's probably what we're going to see with the jump or we are going to see in terms of six to seven. It's that firm performance, the increase in insulation that's going to be needed. So that's in your roof, your walls and subfloor as well. And then obviously your windows. They're your big metrics. They're the, they're the big things that are going to kind of have impact on, on the cost. But I think the benefit that we do have ultimately with regulation coming into play is 
it does set a new standard and a new benchmark. And then so everything gets applied to that. It's all relative in a sense. And once that becomes the norm, you'll see some cost benefits coming into play with that. So like anything, once there's a certain amount of volume in it, you can actually bring back costs a little bit. It still doesn't probably solve the issue with homes that have been built pre these standards. That's that's another argument and issue that we have to look at. But for new homes, anyone building essentially from May next year is going to be having a far superior home that ever has been delivered in, in Australia. Philip, from your point of view, what are three major considerations people should have when doing a sustainable renovation on an existing home that will have the most impact? Renovations are really important because if we look at Natas rating, National House Energy Rating System, as we've said, it ranges from zero stars, which is you're living outside, right? You know, you're, you're, you're basically, you're not even camping, you're living outside, to 10 stars where you have no energy bills. The house is so high performance that you don't need any, any energy effectively. We're jumping from new houses from six star to seven star. But many typical Australian homes are in the 1.8 star range, right? 1.8 out of 10. That's quite shameful, really. So it's relatively easy to build new seven star buildings. What's much more challenging is upgrading our existing building stock. And so what, what are three things we can do? Well, look, the, the lowest hanging fruit is to insulate uh, roof spaces because that's where a lot of the heat escapes from. So insulation, the second one is air tightness. Now, if you think about a home, there's a little gaps in the building fabric. You might not even be able to see them, but heat escapes out of those holes. And if we can tighten them up, typically around windows, around joints and other things, we can make houses more airtight and we lose less heat. I mean, one of the challenges we have at the moment is if you built a new super passive house building, passive house is a standard which has 0.6 air changes per hour. Pressurize that home, 0.6 or 60% of the air in the house would escape an hour. Typical Australian home, 30 air changes per hour. So you pressurize that house, every two minutes all air escapes effectively. Again, you know, that's a really big problem. And for relatively small amounts of money, we can insulate roof spaces, increase air tightness to increasing some maybe 1.8 to three or four stars. Now, if you want to increase things beyond that, it becomes much more difficult because you start to look at things like having to infill cavity walls with insulation, a bit more expensive, having to insulate floors of existing buildings, a bit more expensive. It's not rocket science. A lot of it is insulation, air tightness, improving the building fabric. Um, you can't change the orientation of its of an existing building. So you've got to focus on those two aspects, really. We spoke to some Australians on how they feel about sustainability. If it would save me in the long term, I would consider it. But I think like everybody, the cost of living is just going up so much that things like that are becoming less and less possible. We're surrounded by luxury um, and it's the pursuit of those luxuries that have created some of the environmental harms that we have now. So I, I think it needs to be a priority. Can be an economically smart decision. I know that for my parents, they used a government rebate to get solar panels put in and that really, um, that was I think maybe 10 years ago, and that really cut down their bills. And as retirees, it's um, been quite a big saving for them. Anthony, when it comes to developing technology in the sustainable home space, what are some exciting developments that you're seeing? We're seeing improvements in um, some of the claddings that are being used on buildings. So some of these new, both from an embodied energy perspective, so how much energy they actually use to to manufacture these materials. A lot of 
I suppose, composite materials that are now coming into play, um, how they're actually produced from an embodied energy perspective is quite interesting. There's quite a few companies who incorporate um, green energy to actually manufacture as well. Uh, and we, we strongly encourage that type of product as much as possible. We're also seeing, obviously, an improvement in, in the PV, solar PV and battery, which is an interesting um, and cost coming down as a result of that, which, which is um, quite exciting as we move forward. Some of the interesting aspects we're looking at is even looking beyond Seven Star is actual wall construction technology. So what that wall actually, how that wall is actually built and, and how wide it has to be and how what type of insulation it can incorporate into it as well. So we've been doing some very high level exploration into Eight Star and, and essentially to get that, we need to come up with a new wall technology to do that. So all those things are things that are starting to be explored, um, not really being implemented into the industry as yet, but well, some aspects are, but there's some of the key areas. I think we're also just seeing smarter design coming from builders as well, um, who are investing with architects and, and other, I suppose, sustainable designers out there to provide advice and, and direction. We're seeing some product, the builders are even looking at where they've got inferior orientation. How do they actually look at it in a more appropriate footprint? And it can be as simple as you know incorporating a central courtyard and having that as your private open space instead of that traditionally being at the rear of the home, for example, and, and being able to capture solar gain into your living areas uh, associated with that. So it's been done in the past to an extent, but hasn't probably been done in the in the guise of sustainability and the improvements that you can get out of the performance of a home. So, um, so there, there are a couple of examples of improvements we've seen. You touched on it before that in May next year, the government is increasing the minimum star ratings for new homes from six to seven. And Philip touched on it about how a 10 star home is, you know, technically like net zero. Like you're basically living self-sufficiently, like not one energy bill, not any type of environmental footprint. My question is, how far is seven stars away from net zero? And is net zero actually our ultimate goal? I think 10 stars, it's even beyond even what a net zero is in some instances. Like a jump from seven star to net zero is not actually as big a jump as, as people may think. It is around air tightness being incorporated beyond your seven star requirements. It's then around your solar, you know, having the appropriate solar. If you can have battery obviously associated with that, then it makes a big difference. And it's around the electrification and, and certain appliances. So it's things like heat pump um, for your hot water systems instead of your old gas boosted sys or your gas systems, induction cooktops, technology in all those spaces. Is, it's come such a long way in probably the last five years. I mean, these, these appliances were significantly expensive or more expensive than their comparisons. And now you can get really good quality products in, in both induction cooktops and heat pumps and obviously your recycled type uh, heating and cooling. That's really um, starting to get a lot more comparable with existing appliances out there. So I think it's those kind of key items that once applied to your seven star actually get you to net zero fairly quickly. There is obviously still cost associated with it, but it's actually not a massive as big a jump as, as people may think. The seven star implementation was actually meant to be in October this year. Why do you think it keeps getting pushed out? Do you think that the pushing out of the date is going to impact the legislation in the building industry? Once May 24 comes in, that's it's set into the, the building code essentially or the NCC, the National Construction Code. So that, that will be the new standard that's applied for. There's been some time needed for transition. Transition periods taken a little bit longer for people to, um, well, builders and designers and, and, and industry to kind of get across in, in many ways. It's, I mean, I've been amazed in the last 
probably six to nine months to see and working close with a lot of the builders out there in, in the marketplace, the focus they've had in creating new designs and either evolving designs to be NCC compliant or in some instances scrapping old designs that just weren't worth having anymore and, and evolving new designs. So I can say that the builders have done a, a lot of work in the last nine months, but it has taken time and it's it's understanding that's procurement, supply, understanding all that process that's, that's involved as well. So there is, you know, going to be time that's needed for the industry to catch up. And that's why that transition period's been needed. Philip, do you think that the government's doing enough to regulate the industry and push it forward? Well, look, six star to seven stars, good. You know, it's a move we needed to make, arguably some move we should have made five or six years ago. Remember, we've sat at six stars for a decade. And really, it would have been great to have gone from six to 6.5 to, to seven gradually. And that's probably why we're finding this is one of the, the big challenges. 80% of homes in Australia are built to six-star natters now. Yes, 80% are built to minimum. Of course, the market to want to, and the groups of builders and architects and great people who are pushing those boundaries, creating eight, nine stars, but the vast majority are built to the minimum. So that's why we have to make this move to seven-star, and it's why we have to, hopefully a few years later, or as quick as possible, move to net zero ready buildings. We know that Australia is currently not delivering enough homes that we need to keep up with population growth, et cetera. Do you think, Anthony, that sustainability is slowing down and impacting our housing market problem? I don't think it is at this point of time. Um, it's going to be interesting in the next six, six months to see if there is any any slowdown as a result of the changes. But I don't think it's a, it's an issue of why. There's, there's other factors of why we're not contributing enough housing and the lack of stock that's out there. So I think it's more around planning controls and schemes across the nation that they can be, you know, they're important, obviously, but they can also be quite restrictive. Um, there probably has to be more flexibility in um, allowing, especially smaller homes, to be developed a little bit easier in different regions. I think in Victoria, the Smollett Housing Code's been a very, it's got its pros and cons with it, but it's been a, a really good example of being able to deliver smaller housing quicker into the marketplace. Um, and then when you put on some of these new requirements into it, they can be even better quality small homes as well. So sustainability shouldn't be one of those things that, that we're saying is stopping um, us from delivering affordable housing. I think there's multitude of other elements that come into play that cause that problem. So. And Philip, what's your take on that? I don't think sustainability, you know, these requirements are, are limiting our ability to create new housing. I think there's a, a broad spectrum of, of, of market planning and other, other factors that are the main influence. A possible solution to our stock shortage and housing situation as it stands. And I know, Philip, you're quite an advocate for urban density. Do you think that increasing our urban density in terms of building high rises or expanding existing buildings, do you think that could be a possible solution? I think it can definitely play a role. What we see with, with high rises is you, you can get more units on a particular site. It can provide density. We've got to ensure that we provide equivalent amenity to go with that. So schools, parks and other things as well. There's also interesting energy benefits to high rise. So apartments, because they're kind of bundled together, they have less surface area. And that means they don't lose as much heat in the winter. So they, they're typically easier to heat. The disadvantage is they can be more challenging to cool because they're more challenging to ventilate. So they are a different building stuff. But what I would say is, you know, we're all looking for this kind of 
silver bullet to the housing crisis, aren't we? But is it urban density? Is it prefabrication? Is it 3D printed houses? Is it any number of different things? In reality, it's, it's a, a complex problem and it's going to need a number of different levers. And for me, that's going to be, yes, we need to build more high rise around stations, but not everyone wants to live in a high rise around the station. I'm quite happy doing so. It might also mean lots of missing middle, you know, three to four story units. But it also for me means intensifying the suburbs. Instead of building these kind of standalone detached houses, can we build more terraces with lighter colored roofs, with more greenery around them? So we're going to need lots of different approaches to, to tackle this. What we've learned today is that the sustainable home space really is an evolving one. Like it's a combination of government policy, consumer demand, advancing technology. But with the cost of living crisis, I guess, centre stage in the minds of most Australians, it can be a useful tool for those looking to bring their long-term costs down by short-term higher costs by investing in sustainability. So thank you both so much for joining me today. I've actually learned a lot. I feel like I know a little bit more about sustainability now and I hope you guys have enjoyed it too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me. This has been Real Talk. For your weekly fix, please follow wherever you listen to your podcasts and tune in next time for more real questions, news and insights on the topics that matter most from realestate.com.au, Australia's number one address in property. All information provided is general advice and opinion based on current market conditions. These opinions should not be treated as investment advice. Always obtain advice based on your individual circumstances. Real Talk acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, air and community. We pay our respects to elders past and present.